Amen. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. One of my favorite songs to sing right before either hearing a sermon or preaching a sermon, just that wonderful prayer that the Lord would speak to us and that the truths of his word would indeed prevail over unbelief. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is where we'll be today. Today we've got a rich passage, and so I know it's kind of hot in here, but I encourage you to lock in as much as possible, and even when you're tempted to drift, if you're tempted to drift, uh, I encourage you to try to stay as focused as possible. As before we get started, um, for those of you who are just who are either here for the first time or who haven't been here recently, uh, I've been preaching the last few weeks on Romans six and seven. Uh, yes, children, you can be dismissed to your class there. Uh, it looks like you already figured that out. <laughs> uh, I've been preaching the last few weeks on Romans chapter six and seven, and uh, just so thankful that Pastor Sweat's given me this opportunity to preach and for his willingness to share his pulpit with me. Um, trust it's been a blessing to you. It has been for me to be able to to wrestle through these passages. Um, also today, uh, hopefully you got a handout on your way in. Um, that's today, as you can see from the handout, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, so we'll see if we get through it all. I, I intend to, uh, but hope that that's helpful for you just to kind of take home some of the, the truths from today, um, but also just in following along, perhaps that, that might, you might find that beneficial. Well, last week we began Romans chapter 7. And we, we talked about how we are free from the jurisdiction and the condemnation of the law. We've been rescued from that, and the result of that is that we can belong to another. Paul talks about this at the beginning of Romans 7, especially in verses 4 and 5 and 6. And we have a new spirit-filled way of life. But that brings up a couple questions for Paul. And that is that if we are free from the law and if we are free from sin, are, we, are those the same thing? Is the law sin? And we answered that question last week. He asks that in, in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin. Sorry, this is blown on my microphone. I'm just going to aim that away from me here. Uh, shall we say that the law is sin? Not at all. But today we're going to begin by looking at verse 13. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 25. And what you'll notice is that this section is answering a question. And that question is found in verse 13. So this might be a familiar passage to you, but I'd encourage you to ask yourself the question, how does this paragraph answer the question Paul asks in verse 13? So let's, I'll begin reading right there in verse, Romans 7 verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? That which is good meaning the law. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we need you today. Your spirit has breathed out your word, and we come now to humbly submit to it. Help us to understand it. Help us to be willing to obey it. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word to kindle a deep love in our hearts for you. It's in Jesus' name that we can even pray. Amen. You can see that I've titled the sermon today, The Struggle is Real. (laughs) Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Uh, The struggle is real. We usually use it kind of in a a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. Um, Like we were this past week for the fourth, we were up at my parents, and they always have an annual ice cream tasting competition. And it is as wonderful as you think it might be. Uh, But you get through like six little cups of ice cream, and you're like... I've still got three to go. The struggle is real. (laughs) Uh, It's a good struggle to have. Um, But in our passage today, we see a struggle that Paul has. And it is anything from a half-joking struggle. It's an intense struggle that he describes that we just read through. This back and forth between his desires and his actions. And so today, I'd like us to see what is Paul getting at with this struggle And how can that inform us and encourage us in our Christian lives? This is a a very interesting passage for several reasons. We're going to really scratch the surface of it today, I think. Um, But today I've structured the sermon a little bit differently. I'm going to begin by just kind of walking through the passage, uh, paying particular attention to the the immediate context, but also the different connections. You might have noticed as I was reading through, there's a lot of the word for in this passage. And so Paul, every word for is like a link in a chain, and he's just constantly continuing his argument through this whole section. So I'm going to kind of walk through that and hopefully let us kind of see what this passage is all about on kind of a general level. But then there's a big question that arises in this text, and that is, who exactly is he talking about? I know it says I, but believe it or not, there's actually a question about who exactly he means by I. So I'll describe that and talk about a couple of the different viewpoints there and spend some time working through that. But then we'll finish, and uh, no matter where we go through there, we'll finish with three truths that I trust we can all take home, be encouraged by, be challenged by, uh, and, and be grateful for. Um, So today, I I admit right up front, it might feel a little bit more teachy today than preachy. We're going to really take a look at what this says in a a thorough way, but I trust it'll still be beneficial to us, and I trust it'll be a real blessing to us, especially as we get to the end and, and bring it home, hopefully. So, 
Let's think together about this passage. And particularly, we begin by looking at the immediate context. We say all the time that context is really important. Uh, and when we say that, we can mean different things, right? We, a lot of times we mean the cultural context or the historical context. Like, what was the situation of the people that this letter was written to? We'll go ahead and move to the next slide here. I've got a lot of slides today, so I, I appreciate them uh, sticking with us in the, in the back as best as they can. But if any mistakes, that's on me. Um, so yeah, so we, we think about like historical context sometimes, uh, and, but, in, but it's also important to think about immediate context. So in other words, what came right before what you're looking at? You know, we like to parachute into our Bibles and pull out verses, but it's so dangerous because you're missing the immediate context. So if you look at what just happened right before this section of Scripture, it tells you why the writer is writing what he's writing because he doesn't just randomly place it there. So I'm not going to go all the way back to Romans 1 just yet. Might do that later. Um, but if you remember, just over the last several weeks, we've been talking about Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, it's all about the fact that we as Christians are free from the reign of sin. We've been set free from that. It's not our master anymore. Sin does not have dominion over us. And that's possible because we have been united to Christ. And so when he died, we died. And now we walk in new life. And so because we have this new life, Romans 6 is all about the fact that therefore we shouldn't sin. Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? In chapter 6, by no means. So he's answering these questions about sin, about the law. He's explaining our new identity that we have in Christ. And then we get to chapter 7. And he, said, and he circles back to this idea of what it looks like to be under law. And if you remember, he said in verse 1 of chapter 7, Do you not know, brothers, I am speaking to those who know the law. So he obviously has in mind here, when, when we say law in this chapter, most of the time it seems to be referring to the Mosaic law, uh, the law of the people of Israel. We'll encounter some situations later in chapter 7 where he uses law in a different way, which just further complicates things. So that'll be exciting. Um, but when we see law here, we're, we're generally talking about the Mosaic law. And he says, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. So mostly Jewish folks, but also quite possibly Gentiles who were familiar with the law. That's also possible here. And he gives this illustration about, uh, about marriage, and, but then says that you brothers, in verse 4, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, and you are free to serve someone else. And that new freedom, he says in verse 6, is the new way of the Spirit. So for Christians, our new way of life is a life that is characterized by the Holy Spirit, a supernatural life. But rather than talk more about the Holy Spirit at this point, Paul pauses and asks a couple questions about the law, right? Hinted at this a moment ago. Verse 7 says, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? If I am free from the law, if I am free from sin, are they the same thing? Now, he says, of course not. But it's important to remember what he said. He said in verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So sin uh, I'm sorry, the law reveals sin. But then he, as he goes through that section, he also talks about how the, sin uses the law and actually multiplies. So when we're confronted with a command, our sin nature kind of bucks up against that and actually more sin results. And Paul's point is, yes, the law is good, but it's insufficient. 
He says sin in verse 11, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The law cannot bring life. Doing good things can't bring life on their own. Sin uses the commandment to bring about death, he says. So verse 12, he concludes that section and says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So let there be no question then that God's commands, God's law, particularly the Mosaic law, are good. But Paul doesn't feel like he's quite answered it enough. Because we get this question in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? He's almost, uh, he's addressing this question. It's almost as if he imagines someone saying, okay, Paul, I hear you that the law is good, but you're saying that, it's, that there's still a death at the end of this path. He says, uh, the, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So you may, may not technically be bad, but if it's bringing death, might as well be is what it kind of seems like. So Paul wants to make it clear that the commandment, God's law, not only is it not bad, not only is it not sin, but it also doesn't bring death. Okay? So the command, because if the commandment brought death, then that would undermine Paul's credibility. If he's coming to this group of people and saying, hey, God's law that he gave you, it actually results in, it actually it brings you death, it, it kills you, it's bad. These people might be like, okay, hang on a second. Maybe we're not so sure about this. So he's taking pains through this entire section to show that the law is actually a good thing and that it doesn't bring death. So the question is then, what does? Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. And there's that question and here's his initial response. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Last week we said that it's as if sin uses the law as a base of operations. It produces death through the commandment. Why? What's the result? End of verse 13. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. It's like a Scooby-Doo villain. You get to the end and all of a sudden they pull off the mask. Let's find out who you really are. And there it is. What Paul says is that the, the law shows sin to be sin. It unmasks it for what it is. When we think about God's commands, it's like they put a spotlight on our own desires and say, hey, that thing inside of you that you felt that maybe you even know isn't great, here's what it's called. It's called covetousness or pride or any other number of sins. The commandment unmasks sin for what it is. And does more than that. Not only does the commandment show sin to be sin, but the end of verse 13 says that through the commandment, sin actually becomes more sinful in some way. That it becomes sinful beyond measure. I like the way that Doug Moo puts this. He says that sin is always bad, but it becomes worse, even more sinful, when it involves deliberate violation of God's goodwill for his people. Basically, he's saying that when you're, command, when you're, when you're sinning and you know that God has said not to, that's, there's even more sin. It's sin that is increasing more and more, sinful beyond measure. So that's the question that he's asking. Don't miss that. Because we often use this, we often talk about this text of I don't do what I want to do, but it's all in the context of this question about did the good law bring death to me? Verse 14, 
for conjunction. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So that for indicates to us that whatever he's about to say is continuing the answer he just gave. He says in, in verse 13, remember, he said, sin produces death through me. So sin is the problem. Verse 14 reaffirms that by saying, hey, we know after all that the law is spiritual. By that you think of, uh, of spiritual, we think of God is spirit. The law is from God. The law isn't bad, in other words. It's spiritual. But on the flip side, I am of the flesh. Now, when we hear flesh, we often think about like our skin or whatever. And perhaps there's a physical element to it here. But more deeply, when Paul uses flesh, he's referring to the part of us that is susceptible to sin. Back in verse 5, he said, while we were living in the flesh was when our sinful passions could grab hold to us. So the flesh is the part of us, you don't have to think of it as like, you know, like a hand necessarily, but it is just the part of us that is able to sin. It's the part of us that is susceptible to sin. So Paul says that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. And what does being of the flesh look like? He says, sold under sin. That's a pretty negative depiction that he gives there. I am fleshly, I am carnal, and I am sold under sin. I am at some level captive to sin, he says. So remember the question then, did God's good law bring death? No, absolutely not. It was sin. And how can sin grab on to me? Because I'm fleshly. I'm susceptible to sin. And so it can latch on to me. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And now, verse 15 begins with yet another four, right? So think of it this way. You've got, he starts to answer the question in verse 13. Did the good law bring death? No way. Verse 14, because after all, I am the one who is susceptible to sin, not the law. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. And now, what does it look like for him to not understand his own actions? It's to have this internal struggle. So he is demonstrating that the law is not the problem. I'm the problem. I'm susceptible to sin. I have sin that comes into me because of my own fleshness, if I can put it that way. So this struggle that Paul describes is in large part to clear law of the accusation that it's bad. This whole section is showing that sin is the real culprit here. And so he says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And he says that several different ways over and over again. And so it's revealing this conflict between desire, I want to do the right thing, and yet so often I don't. Some, I want to not do the wrong thing, and yet so often I do. John Piper says that this man's misery is caused by his indwelling sin, not by law. The law is not sinful, and the law is not poison. I am sinful, and my sin is a deadly poison. So then if we look at verse number 16, thinking of it in this context, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
Can you see how important the context is here, the immediate context? Because we often come into this text and it's like, oh, I don't know why he's talking about law here. This is all about my struggle with sin. And there is certainly a struggle with sin he's talking about. But here he's pointing out that the law is actually a good thing. Why? Because if I have a desire that says, let's take, for instance, covetousness. Okay, I really shouldn't covet in this way, and yet I do. Well, what does the law say? The law says, do not covet. So then my desire is agreeing with the law. That's what he's saying there. So he's saying that sin, he's reaffirming this fact yet again. The sin is the problem, not the law. I agree with the law that it's good because I have this desire in me that says the same thing that the law does. Verse 17 then, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This isn't to be used as an excuse, right? This isn't saying, well, it's just sin that made me do it. Uh, of course not. But he's trying to show that the problem, the bad guy, the villain here, is sin, not the law. And now for several verses, he's going to flesh out this back and forth. We don't have time to go into them all, unfortunately. If you have any questions in a few hours, I'd be happy to go through them with you. <laughs> but jump down to verse 21. And here he really leans into this, this, uh, this principle then that this struggle is, is so much a struggle that it actually is results in some level of captivity. Now, in this section, in my, my journal here, I've highlighted all the instances of law. You can see all the little blue marks there that I have for law. Um, it's interesting. He uses the law in different ways in the same text. So you have to really use the context of each occurrence to figure out what he's saying. So verse 21, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Well, here he's just using law in the sense of a general principle, right? Like Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> it's just a general principle. But he says that, so I find it to be a law. Here's a general principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The same struggle between desire and sinful action. Four, 22, I delight in the law of God. Well, here is God's law. That's pretty clear. And he says that I treasure it at some level in my inner being. But though I desire it, continuing to point up this contrast, there's another law. Oh, it's another law. It's a different one. And this law wages war against the law of my mind. The law of my mind is the, is the part of me that says, I agree with God's law. I, I, I know that this is the right thing. I even want to do it. So that's the law of my mind. But it wages war and makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So a bunch of different uses of law. You can look, study that out some more on your own. But notice that he says that there's this principle, this law of sin, that I have this propensity to do the wrong thing. And it's so strong that I'm even captive to it, he says. No wonder he exclaims, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Doug Moo says, to summarize this section, Paul's essential teaching is about the inability of the Mosaic law to rescue sinful people from spiritual bondage. And that's the same whether that bondage is the condition of the unregenerate person who cannot be saved through the law or that of the regenerate person who cannot be sanctified and ultimately delivered from the influence of sin through the law. Folks, when we use the law as a road to salvation or to sanctification, 
it will always lead us to a dead end. You see, for both Christians and non-Christians, we will see a habit in our lives that we don't think is best. Maybe we'll, we'll go as far as to say this habit in our lives is, is morally wrong. It's sin. For instance, maybe it's that we, we have people we love and yet we treat them poorly sometimes. I, I really love them. I want to do the right thing and yet I treat them poorly. Or maybe we're lazy. Oh, I want to work hard, but I just don't. <laughs> Desire, action. But we have this tendency. And the tendency is that we try to fix these habits by clinging to a rule. Maybe even to God's law. Well, this is what God said. This is what God said. I shouldn't do this. I'm just going to try really hard not to. Paul says that that doesn't work. When you emphasize law, 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 yes, sin will be exposed, but it will not be destroyed. In fact, it'll multiply and make you captive to it. So while the law is good, and we should even think about the law, we should measure ourselves by the law, while the law is good, you must not look to it for rescue. It can't accomplish that. So when you're trying to get a hold of, let's say, impatience, you need more than just taking a deep breath. It might be helpful. But if you're struggling with that, then you have a sin problem. And sin holds you captive and you can't free yourself. So where can you look for rescue then? Not rules. Sin is way too opportunistic for that. It holds out life in one hand but clutches a, a dagger behind its back. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And I want to read verse 25 so badly, but I'm not going to just yet. Because <laughs> now we need to answer a different question. And that has to do with the identity of the person in this passage. You see, Paul's been talking about how he wants to do the right thing, and yet he doesn't do it. He delights in the law of God, and yet he's often overcome by sin. I mean, that's something I can relate to as, as someone who has trusted in Christ. Yeah, there are times when I want to do the right thing, but I don't. And yet, he also says that he is of the flesh. He is sold under sin. That he is captive to the law of sin. I mean, what happened to all of the Romans chapter 6 about being free from, the sin, from, free from sin? All of the talk about sin will have no dominion over you. What's going on here? Well, if you're confused, welcome to the club. <laughs> This passage, it's, it's probably one of the most debated passages in the New Testament for this very question. Uh, and, and it's not to say that this is a, a gospel-changing issue by any stretch of the imagination. But there is a lot of question that when Paul says, I do this or whatnot, is he referring to himself as a believer struggling against sin? Or there's the question of, is this actually Paul referring back to his pre-conversion state and referring to himself as an unbeliever, someone who has not yet come to Christ and not yet been freed from sin. My hunch is most of you have probably heard it as the former, that this is referring to Paul as, as a Christian. But frankly, I'm not sure. <laughs> so here I am to tell you that. Um, and, and there's a lot more than those two positions. There's all sorts of questions about, well, could it be Israel? Could it be Adam? Could there be a third way? 
I'm just going to give you the two main positions today. And because I'm not totally certain, I'm not going to present it with confidence. So I'm going to give you four arguments for why Paul is describing someone who has been born again as a Christian. And then I'm going to give you four arguments for why he's probably describing someone who's an unbeliever. And I'll let you make the decision. So first of all, the, the, the idea that Paul is describing someone who has been born again. What evidence is there in the passage of this? We're, it's almost like we're going to be playing a little bit of guess who here. I don't know if you've ever played that. But you've got this little, it's this kid's game and it's got like all these little pictures of people. And you flip them up and you flip them down. And you get a card and your opponent has a card. And you're asking questions to try to determine the identity of the opponent, right? So like, do, does your person have glasses? Do they have facial hair, etc.? It's kind of what we're going to be doing here a little bit to try to determine the identity. Um, I would say that the majority position is that most people think this refers to believers. There's been lots of people throughout church history that has believed that. Uh, and also plenty of people today that, that would hold to that position. So, four reasons why this is the case, or is maybe the case. <laughs> First of all, the big picture of Romans moves from pre-conversion to post-conversion. And these are on your notes, so if it's a little small, you should be able to see that. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul describes the, uh, the, the uh, utter depravity of unbelievers. That they worship the creature rather than the creator. Doesn't mean that everyone's as bad as they could possibly be, okay? But it does mean that everyone, as my old pastor used to say, everyone is as bad off as they could possibly be. And so there's this picture of people who do not seek God, who go astray. And that's chapters 1 through 3. But what happens in chapters 4 through 5? There's faith in the work of Jesus Christ, and that is the means of salvation. There's rescue, there's forgiveness, there's justification, there's freedom from the wrath of God. Chapter 6 then, what's the result of that? That we are free from sin, and that we should live like it. If I skip chapter 7 for a second and go to chapter 8, there's no condemnation. We are free to walk in the Christian life. So both chapter 6 and chapter 8 are all about the Christian life. So this position would say it stands to reason that this is referring to someone who is a Christian. Second reason, probably the, the main reason, the present tense shows a current struggle. So in, in verse 14, Paul switches to present tense. He says, uh, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. He says, I do not understand my own actions. Through, so throughout the passage so far, he had been saying everything in the past, right? When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And then he switches to present tense. So you would think that means he's right, saying right now this is the case. You might say, well, doesn't that seal the deal? Maybe. <laughs> Reason number three. Only believers can desire obedience like this Paul does. And can delight in God's law. After all, in chapter 3, Paul said that no one seeks after God. So you're telling me that someone who doesn't seek after God can have this kind of desire to do the right thing? Or even more so, which I think is incredibly convincing, in verse 22, For I delight in the law of God. Can someone who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, really delight in the law of God? And then the last reason that I'll mention, there's more than this, okay? The description Paul presents is similar to so many believers' experiences, right? So we look at this passage and we say, I, I feel that way sometimes. So that, that seems to match up with what I've experienced. 
Um, and experience is, is valid to consider. Like, if, the Bible, if there's a, something that never aligned with our experience, we would want to think about that. But our experience is never the final word on what we think a passage says, right? God's word means what God's word means, regardless of our own experience with that. So, that's why some might say, some do say, that Paul describes a believer. Is it possible, though, that Paul is actually describing himself prior to his conversion? I know it's warm in here. I appreciate you sticking with me here. Um, Is it possible? Well, it certainly seems possible. This is more of a minority position, but it was actually the position of the very earliest church fathers. So the people who were closest to Paul in, uh, in history were the ones who actually believed that he wasn't talking about a Christian here. Uh, and there's plenty of, of scholars and pastors today that also hold this position as, as well as throughout church history. Um, most of these, uh, I've, or some of these I've taken from an article by Tom Schreiner. Uh, there's a link to that in your, um, in your handout there. So if you want to go look at that more, you can. If you want a book on this, I can give it to you. If you want to debate on this, I can give it to you. Whatever you want to do, have fun studying this. But here's four reasons why Paul might be referring to an unbeliever. So you're in the jury. See what you think. Number one, verses five through six preview the rest of chapter seven and chapter eight. In other words, you move from captivity and no Holy Spirit in play to chapter eight, freedom and the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse five, This is really interesting. Verse 5, Paul says, while we were living in the flesh, there's pretty much no question that verse 5 is referring to an unbeliever because it's talking about our previous way of life as a non-Christian when we were living in the flesh. Now look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Interesting. Certainly Christians still have the flesh, but he says, I am fleshly. I am of the flesh. Then he says in verse 5, he says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law and they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Sinful passions aroused by the law. Sin getting woken up by the law. Well, that sounds a whole lot like what this argument has been saying. Verses 7 through 12 talks about how sin sees an opportunity through the law. So he's continuing this idea of sin being aroused, and that continues. This is important. It continues in verse 13. Sin produces death through what is good. So this whole picture of sin producing death through God's commandments, in verse 5 anyway... It's referring to a pre-conversion state. And what's the result of it? To bear fruit for death. Well, how did this section end? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 6 says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So those who are not in Christ, Paul says, are held captive. What does he say in verse uh, 23? I am made captive to the law of sin. So the descriptions he's using are very similar in the rest of chapter 7 to what he says there in verse 5. On the flip side, he says in verse 6, we have died to all that. We are freed from the law. Instead, we walk in a new way. And this new way is of the Holy Spirit. Guess who doesn't show up in the rest of chapter 7? the Holy Spirit. 
Now, of course, the chapter divisions were not there in in the original, right? So Paul has this section in chapter 7. In the next section in chapter 8, that's when the Holy Spirit comes in. And he talks about the new life because of Christ. We have this new life in the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is nowhere to be seen in this whole struggle that Paul has with sin. It's not flesh versus spirit like we tend to think of, but it's self versus flesh. Then the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 8. We could, I could say it this way. The progression in verses 5 and 6 from struggle and defeat to victorious life in the Spirit. That's verses 5 and 6. They correspond strikingly well to the movement from struggle and defeat in chapter 7 to victorious life in the Spirit in chapter 8. And if verse 5 and 6 are referring to conversion, moving from an unbelieving state to a believing state, then perhaps the advocates of this view would say that this also is, for chapter 7 is referring to the state of someone who doesn't know Christ. Chapter 8, referring to that. I told you we were getting into the weeds today. Reason number two. The extent of captivity Paul describes contradict, uh, or I've changed this in my notes. How do I say it there? I like it better there. Aligns with his previous statements about unbelievers. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. So the extent of captivity, what do I mean? Well, like, like I just said a moment ago, he, he says that I am sold under sin, verse 14. He talks about being captive. He talks about nothing good dwelling in him. That is in his flesh. And I think we tend to think of this passage and we think of it as, well, some, it's Paul describing that sometimes I do right and sometimes I do wrong. But if you look at the passage, he's actually saying, I have the desire to do right, but I don't do it. He's emphasizing the inability of himself in this passage to do the right thing. He's not saying, oh, sometimes I do right, sometimes I do wrong. No, I want to do the right thing. I'm agreeing with the law, but unfortunately, I often don't do the right thing. So, it seems that the advocates of this view would say that sin is in charge. It's its master. But in chapter 6, he said, you've been set free from sin. You were slaves of sin. Now you're free. Sin will have no dominion over you. It's, it would almost feel like he's saying, Christian, you have freedom, freedom, freedom. Wait a second, just kidding. You actually shouldn't expect to feel free or experience freedom. So you should expect a life of captivity. That's what someone in this camp might say. Thirdly, the present tense can be used to add vividness. So you might be saying, okay, Josh, I, I was done after this whole, like, he's saying, hey, I struggle with this present tense, game over, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Becca and I are walking out on the road, and we hear a little rustle in the trees next to us, 10 feet away from us, and we look over, and there's a bear 10 feet away from us, and we start booking it, and there's a cyclist coming toward us, he's like, bear, 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 and we're like, we know, we know, we know. True story. Hopefully it got your attention back. But did any of you think that right this second, I was being chased by a bear? No. Using the present tense, I see a bear, I hear a rustle, that can add vividness to a story, right? So, someone like this would argue that Paul was saying, I was, uh, in, in, the, in verses 7 through 12, this commandment pr- was promising life to me, but it proved to be death to me. When the commandment came, sin came alive, he says, and I died, and then boom, we switch to now. It's like he gets into the, to the first person here. It's like now, I mean, not, not first person is probably not the best way to say that. Um, but it's, it's very vivid. And so perhaps that's what he's doing here. Last thing. 
the delighting in God's law must be taken in context of the first century Jewish person. So those who think this is referring to Paul in his post-conversion state would say that how could someone who doesn't know Christ actually delight in God's law? Well, remember, he's speaking to those who know the law. And it's, it's interesting, and so he's speaking, so wouldn't it make sense that a first century Jewish person, a Pharisee, had some level of delight in God's law? I mean, you think about chapter 10. Paul talks about his brothers, uh, referring to Israel, and he says that he knows they have a zeal for God. And he's referring to unbelieving Jews in this case. They have a zeal for God. They want, they actually have a desire to do the right thing. So perhaps that's the sense in which he's using it here. Okay, why did we enter the classroom this morning to go into this? Why does this matter? Well, I hope that you want to know what God's word actually says. Uh, I hope that you don't want to just know what I think because I can be wrong. <laughs> but God's word is infallible. God's word is true and I want to present it fairly. And I would also say that this, it's, like I said, it's not gospel shaking by a long shot. You can land on either side, and it's not really the end of the world. But it does affect the way you will take certain phrases, potentially. Um, it'll potentially change the way you look at some applications from this text. I think most applications that you take, no matter what position you're on, you could find those in other texts of Scripture. But the question would be, can I make this application from this text? Because we want to be as faithful to the text as possible. So, you might be asking, Josh, what do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I've been wrestling with this for weeks, and it kind of depends on the day. If you, if you forced me to ask, I, th I, I tend to think this is actually referring to an unbeliever. Um, Pastor Sweat would tend to think it refers to a believer. So, like, it's, it's okay to have a disagreement on this. I just think that, uh, for the reasons I've already stated, uh, that this, this view is, is slightly more convincing to me. But ask me tomorrow, I might have a different answer. So, let's get really practical as we finish. Three take-home truths for us today. Regardless of what you think about all that, if you took a nap, now is the time to wake up. <laughs> Three take-home truths. First truth. Christians struggle with sin. Be encouraged. If you take the position that this is referring to an unbeliever, then it, you could potentially abuse that to think that, well, are Christians not supposed to struggle at all then? Am I not even a Christian? Because it's, I kind of feel like this guy. Let it be very clear. Uh, th those who take the position that this is referring to an unbeliever would be very quick to say that, yes, believers struggle with sin a lot. And even at times find themselves in a position that may seem similar to that. But... They're just saying that that's not what that particular passage teaches, potentially. Think of Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Very similar verse to what's going on in our passage. Uh, I don't think it sways the day either way. Uh, but, but it says very clearly that there are desires within us as Christians that are opposed to one another. So these, uh, so, so yeah, Christian sin. First John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, what does that imply? That sin is possible, right? If you take any command in the New Testament, live this way, don't live this way, that implies that Christians can do the opposite. 
Because Paul and the other New Testament writers, they're writing to Christians. Friend, it is normal to struggle with sin. You are not alone. Are you discouraged this morning because you just keep on falling over and over again? Maybe you even wonder, am I a true Christian if I struggle like this much? If you look around the room, what you'll see are born-again Christians who battle the indwelling sin in their flesh every single day. If you look up here on the platform, you'll see a Christian who battles sin every single day. Christians struggle with sin, and that, that should be an encouragement to us because we sin, and we're not alone. Secondly, these may feel basic, but I trust that they are refreshing to you. Secondly, Christians must not sin. Be challenged. Just as the unbeliever position could potentially go to the wrong extreme of saying that Christians don't struggle with sin, so if you take the position that this passage is referring to a believer, you could abuse that to say that Christians can excuse sin. Well, it was sin within me. It wasn't me. I just, I just couldn't do it. I was listening to a debate on this passage and, and one man actually said that he, he once confronted someone who was leaving his wife for another woman. And the man said, well, you know, I don't do what I want to do. Total excuse. And actually use this passage as, as the excuse. May that never be the case for us. So do you make light of sin? Sin's a big deal. Sin in this passage is portrayed as a deceptive slave master who brings about death. The fact that Christians struggle with sin must never be taken as an excuse for sin. As we've said throughout this series, sin is unthinkable for the Christian. So do you make excuses for it? I couldn't help it. The temptation was too strong. I was just too tired. Remember that sin is any breaking of God's commands. Sin is any lack of love for God, any lack of love for others. So when we view others as objects to be used, we sin. When we, use, when we love entertainment or pleasure or even good things like family, more than we love God, we sin. But as Christians, we've been freed from that. We must not excuse sin. So yeah, Christians struggle with sin. Christians must not sin. But Christians have victory over sin. We left off a few minutes ago in verse 24 and 25. I encourage you to look back at that in your text. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Why? Why gratitude? Why praise in the midst of such an intense battle? Because victory comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whether you are a Christian this morning or someone who maybe isn't into the Christian thing, maybe you're not a believer this morning, the solution to your struggle with sin is the same, and it's Jesus. He is the only answer to the question of sin. How can we actually do what God wants us to do? 
by our old self dying on a cross with Jesus, by being raised to new spirit-filled life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice I, I, I put it as Christians have victory over sin. Not merely that Christians can have victory, though that's true. We can have victory over sin, but Christians objectively have it. If you have Jesus, then you have victory. Not merely can, but that victory has been objectively obtained for you. And as a result, you can now experience that victory in, our daily, in your daily battle against sin. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, then the battle certainly continues to rage. But it is a battle that you are fighting from a position of strength and victory. You are free from sin and the law. You belong to another and now the Holy Spirit himself equips you for battle. Jesus has rescued us from the law and sin's tyranny. He does rescue us progressively from the sin that remains within us. And one day, he will rescue us from the frail bodies we inhabit. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we thank you for the victory that you have won for us. Christ, your blood has washed away our sin and we have assurance of new life in you. Lord, may we be encouraged, may we be challenged, and may we be grateful that despite the wretchedness of ourselves, you have loved us enough to bring us into your family. Thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.